and welcome to episode 95 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna and I'll be your host today as always. Now, in today's episode, it is the second one of our 2023 series of Black History Month in the US. So we're looking at those people that crossed over borders from the US to Britain uh, and lived, worked, um, protested, you know, tried to make life better uh, for black people around the world, but in Britain. Um, And today, following on from our episode of uh, Ellen and William Craft last week, episode 94, where we were thinking about their escape from enslavement, we are going to be thinking about Henry Brown, also known as Henry Box Brown, and his escape from enslavement in the US. So if you listened to last week's episode and you listen very closely to the end credits, you will know that we have a researcher on the team now. This is now a team of two which makes life a lot easier for me. Uh, so shout out to Zakia um, and her fantastic research skills that help this podcast um, carry on in a time where time just feels like it's a lot shorter. Um, but I tell you all this because this week, or well, the week I've researched and worked to create this episode, I had a message from Zakia and she said, oh, this guy, he's very problematic, this Henry Box Brown character, having done the William and Ellen uh, research and their story being so uplifting and, and very, you know, they really reached back down to, to help those that couldn't help themselves after they had freed themselves from enslavement. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Brown, he's, he is, he's an interesting guy, to say the least, and I don't like to judge too harshly the people of the past because, you know, everybody has to survive in the way that makes sense to them. But some of the decisions that Henry Box Brown made are very interesting to me uh, and I don't understand all of them, but I don't have to, to share their history. Um, And at the end of the day, um, I don't want this podcast to be a place where we just pretend that everybody is perfect and share the stories of perfect black people because that's not reality at all. Um, And so here's to more kind of, I guess, problematic characters in history. Um, And here's to Henry Box Brown, whose story I'm going to tell you about today. And I thought I would start with an extract um, from the narrative of the life of Henry Box Brown, written by um, Henry Brown, uh, and just share kind of some of the elements of why he did what he did, him writing obviously about his life in hindsight, um, and just to pull apart some of the kind of, I think, emotional uh, and, yeah, emotional thoughts behind um, his escape from enslavement and his duty to others that he felt he had after being able to escape. So much has already been written concerning the evils of slavery, and by men so much more able to portray its horrid form than I am, that I might well be excused if I were to remain altogether silent on the subject. But however much has been written, however much has been said, and however much has been done, I feel impelled by the voice of my own conscience, from the recent experience which I have had of the alarming extent to which the traffic in human beings is carried on, and the cruelties both bodily and mentally to which men in the condition of slaves are continually subjected, and also from the hardening and blasting influences which this traffic produces on the character of those who thus treat as goods and chattels the bodies and souls of their fellows to add yet one other testimony of and protest against the foul blot on the state of morals, of religion and of cultivation in the American Republic. 
for I feel convinced that enough has not been written, enough has not been said, enough has not been done, while nearly four million of human beings possessing immortal souls are in chains, dragging out their existence in the southern states. They are keenly alive to the heaven-born voice of liberty and require the illumination of the grace of Almighty God. Having myself been in that same position, but by the blessing of God, having been enabled to snap my chains and escape to a land of liberty, I owe it as a sacred duty to the cause of humanity that I should devote my life to the redemption of my fellow men. The words of Henry Brown following his escape from enslavement in America. Now, our first section is titled The Man and the Motive as we think about who Henry Brown was and why he decided uh, to escape from enslavement, uh, what the motive was, um, and then we'll go on to the mission itself. Henry Brown, and I'm going to call him Henry Brown because his middle name is not Box, even though that's the reason we kind of know about his story, the situation with the box, um, but I'm going to refer to him as Henry Brown, Mr. Brown. Um, he was enslaved, he was born enslaved in Richmond, Virginia, in either 1815 or 1816 um, at the Hermitage Plantation. Um, sources cannot decide on which, but 1816 tends to be the one that people uh, fall down on. Um, unlike many enslaved Africans, he knew and lived with his family members on the same plantation and spent his formative years with his mother, father, Father, four sisters and three brothers which is quite remarkable in a way that a family of 10 was kept together unfortunately it shouldn't be remarkable it should be quite normal um, but they were all enslaved by John Barrett who was a former mayor of Richmond Virginia um, however in 1830 so when um, Henry Brown was about uh, 14 years old or so um, John Barrett passed away and he was sent to a tobacco factory that was owned by John Barrett's son, William. Um, at this point, he's then separated from his family. His brothers and sisters were all split up um, at different plantations and the family unit was destroyed. And that's something he, following his escape, uh, Brown writes a lot about the destruction of the family unit, something which obviously he has firsthand knowledge and um, experience of coming from, you know, his formative years, having spent that time with his family and then it being absolutely ripped apart. Um, the family structure, the family unit in societies that um, were built on enslavement in the Caribbean and in um, America have generational problems with family units um, that are literally a direct response from enslavement. And I think it was one of the most, um, what's the word for it? Despicable, disgusting, disturbing, abhorrent, evil um, outcomes, I think, of, of enslavement in, in these places because it completely destroys um what people understand and know to be a black family unit um, moving forwards um that has an impact today um and so something that um henry brown speaks a lot about in his work and time after but i'm skipping ahead to think about what he's doing now and his motivation um for his escape so he split up from his family and over the next 12 years he works and earns enough money um through overwork um which is I assume like a kind of element of like you've done your free labor and then there's an element of you can get paid for some extra work within plantation life. Um, but through this, he was actually able to get married. He marries a lady called Nancy, who is an enslaved woman from a nearby plantation. And through this overwork, he was actually able to rent a place to stay. 
and together they had three children. Um, and again, he was lucky and fortunate in many ways. Although I don't think the word fortunate or lucky should go with anybody that's enslaved. So, you know, apologies for want of a better word there. Um, but they're able to stay together. Um, again, a family unit kind of intact, just about. Um, and, you know, he continues to work uh, and rent this place uh, and look after the three children that they have together. However... There would be a however, and this is kind of the motive for uh, Henry's decision to escape. In August 1848, Nancy's owner decided to sell her and the children out of state. Henry comes home from work one day to find his now pregnant with their fourth child, um, his wife, and the three children gone. Now, I don't know what that does to someone mentally. But that realistically, for me, made sense with Henry's response to then escape. He literally comes home, comes home from work, which was probably already hell on earth, and his family, the probably reason for his you know, ability to get to work every day, to live, to exist, for them, are gone. He mourns the loss of them for several months. They've been sent to North Carolina. He's in Richmond, Virginia. Um, there's no reason he believes to keep him in Richmond he's like got nothing there now nothing to live for nothing to work for and he resolves at this moment to escape to freedom um he works with a free black dentist called James Caesar Anthony Smith and a white shoemaker called Samuel Alexander Smith who in some ways is known as a shoemaker sometimes he's known as a carpenter often referred to as both things probably a jack of several trades um however Bit of an irony because this white shoemaker slash carpenter also has many people enslaved, like he owns slaves, but he helps Henry Brown escape enslavement. So I don't really know how he slept at night. I don't know what was going through his mind. Um, but I think the the nature of enslavement, enslavement was that it was just so normalised to a point that he could see why it was bad, but also it was just a fact of life and he had people enslaved in his property anyway um yeah i don't try and understand the work of of these people we're we're going to try and understand henry brown today and i think that'll be enough trying to understand for one episode um but anyway it was at this point that brown decides he's going to ship himself to the north to the free north of the u.s where people he believed you know were living a better life there he would not have to be enslaved and so the mission begins on the 29th of March, 1849, Henry Brown was 34 years old and weighed 200 pounds. He burnt his hand with sulfuric acid deliberately on the day of his planned escape to ensure a day off work for his injuries. A box was constructed. The exact measurements are disputed. They range from the box being 3 feet by 2 feet 8 inches deep by 2 feet wide versus a box measuring three foot one inches by two feet six inches deep by two feet wide which is obviously literally the difference of a few inches either way the box is small it's a small box small in the sense that this is a whole human being 200 pound man fitting into this box and he's going to be in there for a while it's not a quick trip from virginia to the north you know anything could happen on this journey he is in the box it would have been a squeeze 
this is where this story just gets crazy for me. And this is why maybe I should be calling him Henry Box Brown because he was really one with the box for a good while. The box was lined. It was lined with a woolen felt cloth and there were some three small air holes. He also had a tool with him in the box to poke any more air holes that he needed if air supplies started to dwindle. The thought of that alone, I'm not claustrophobic per se. I don't like small spaces, but if, you know, push came to shove, I would get in a box. But not being funny, that makes me feel very uncomfortable. The fact that he had to have a tool with him just in case the air ran out and he'd need to punch holes to get more air. Yeah, he had a container, a small container of water and a few biscuits with him for the journey. Now, I don't know, there's not really any point in my life where water and biscuits will suffice. Um, But again, he had to do what he had to do and he was so pushed and compelled and moved to remove himself from this condition of enslavement that he had to do what he had to do. Two of his friends packed him into the box and shipped him to Philadelphia by express mail, labelling the package as dried goods from Richmond to Philly. Now, this is just crazy to me. The box was labelled this side up with care, you know, kind of like a fragile label. Please look after this box. There's literally a human being in it. Um, However, you know, it didn't start well as a journey because he was carried to the express office, head downwards, upside down. Can you imagine the blood rushing to your head as you're like crammed into this box? I believe he was like sat imagine sitting in a box and then having to bring your knees up towards your body and tucking your head in i think that's the position he was in now then imagine that upside down so not only are your like knees kind of pushing down into your stomach but your head is upside down and the blood's rushing and your neck is bent and you know it's just oh it just doesn't sound good to me at all but i just guess it highlights the desperation of this man to to find himself out of enslavement and to be free Um, He did exactly what he felt he needed to do at this moment. I don't think it had been done before or if it had done before, it hadn't been publicised. And so that's probably one of the reasons he was able to actually get away with this because nobody was expecting a human body to be in the box alive at that. I'm going to read a letter actually in order to convey the journey Henry Brown was on for 27 hours when he was enclosed in this box. Um, from Richmond, Virginia to Philadelphia. Um, And the letter is um, a copy of a letter that's part of um, the narrative of Henry Box Brown um, that was written by himself, um, obviously containing letters um, in support of his story um, and just kind of a verification um, of other speeches and other kind of moments that reference his escape. Um, this one in particular is um, a copy of a letter written to the Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia um, because they wanted to... Um, it's a M. McRoy who writes this letter and he wants to introduce the story of Henry Brown's escape to this um, Anti-Slavery Society, which came up again in um, Ellen and William Craft's episode as well. Um, they were clearly doing the work um, in terms of um, helping people escape from enslavement and also publishing and publicising um, the kind of escapes and the stories in order to push the abolitionist narrative and to help the laws be overturned. Um, and so I'm going to read this letter out, which really does just summarise the the events um, and the journey, the 27-hour journey that he took in a box. Here is a man who has been the hero of one of the most extraordinary achievements I ever heard of. He came to me on Saturday morning last in a box tightly hooped, marked 
This Side Up by Overland Express from the city of Richmond. Did you ever hear of anything in all your life to beat that? Nothing that was done on the barricades of Paris exceeded this cool and deliberate intrepidity. To appreciate fully the boldness and risk of the achievement, you ought to see the box and hear all the circumstances. This box in the clear, three feet one inch long, two feet six inches deep and two feet wide. It was a regular old store box, such as you see in Pearl Street. It was grooved at the joints and braced at the ends, leaving but the very slightest crevice to admit the air. Nothing saved him from suffocation but the free use of water, a quantity of which he took in with him in a beef's bladder, and with which he bathed his face and the constant fanning of himself with his hat. He fanned himself unremittingly all the time, though this side up on the box was not regarded, and he was twice put with his head downwards, resting with his back against the end of the box, his feet braced against the other. The first time he succeeded in shifting his position, but the second time was on board of a steamboat, where people were sitting and standing about the box, and where any motions inside would have been overheard and have led to discovery. He was therefore obliged to keep his position for 20 miles. This nearly killed him. He says the veins in his temples were as thick as his finger. I had been expecting him for several days, and was in mortal fear all the time, lest his arrival should only be a signal for the calling in of the coroner. You can better imagine than I can describe my sensations, when in answer to my rap on the box and question, all right, the prompt response came, all right, sir. The man weighs 200 pounds and is about 5 feet 8 inches in height and is, as you will see, a noble-looking fellow. He will tell you the whole story and the letter goes on with further instructions for um, the society to reach out to him and how they can go about doing that. Um, and that is kind of the majority of the story. Now, um, M. McRoy uh, is the man that collected him um, because it was all planned out that you know he would be shipped from one end to the other. He couldn't actually you know take himself out the box he had to uh, be taken out he had to be met he had to be collected or should we say the box had to be collected um and i think the circumstances around the whole journey him not being able to move or make a sound because there were people around the cargo um on the journey on the steamship um and i just think that the fact that he was able to hold that position and as this letter reads not die you know this man half expected to open the box to a dead body that the stakes were so high in this escape, um, not to mention the fact that if he was caught, he would be sent straight back because he is literally owned by another human being. Um, he's a property of. And so there was no real win for him in this situation. He had to endure 27 hours in a box. Yes, he becomes free at the end. He's still, we assume, heartbroken from the separation of his family. This has happened to him twice, his parents, his siblings, and then his wife and his children. And now here he is, you know, he's made it to Philadelphia. And I feel like at this point, we could argue the real work begins. Um, as he, or we assume, he plans to get his family back. I think at this point, it would be a good point to give a shout out to the postal service, because I don't really think... Not to say anybody's shipping themselves in boxes today, but realistically, like, unfortunately, if every got hold of that package, like, that person wouldn't make it, you know? The Royal Mail strikes, the way that they're carrying on, um, and rightly so, support all the strikes over here, but that package wouldn't make it. However, the Postal Service at the time, in the 1840s, in the US, 
was on point because he reached his destination in 27 hours. And whilst that sounds like a very long time, that is very efficient mailing. The service was called Adams and Company Express. It was the most reputable of the time. It was founded in 1840 and it was marketed on its literal confidentiality and efficiency. It was favoured by abolitionist organisations because there was a promise that nobody would ever look inside the boxes it carried. There's definitely security elements that would not fly now, but because um, abolitionists knew that they were kind of like, they were just on a drink water and mind your business, they were not looking in those boxes, they knew that they could send whether it was abolitionist materials, pamphlets, or in this case, a whole person uh, from the south to the north. Um, the need for confidentiality in mailing wasn't literally just because of like, abolition. It was um, after gold was discovered in California in around 1848. Um, and there were a lot of people that obviously had money in that. And they wanted carriers that weren't curious about the packages they were carrying um and so this obviously as a kind of indirect impact benefited the escape plans of the enslaved and the efforts of the underground railroad who relied so heavily on delivery services such as this by the time um henry brown made his journey there was a complex system involving roads depots railroads ferries bridges and steamships that was in place along the atlantic coast um by which Adams Express advertised its capability for one or two day delivery um, and they obviously delivered Brown within 27 hours um, obviously beating the two day delivery record I don't know would he have survived two days in a box can is that possible I'm not sure uh, it would have been based on the fact that he was upside down for a long period of time 20 miles of that journey um you know, it's it's very, very, very much the case that without this postal service, this whole story wouldn't be a thing. Um, and it would be a story of a man probably passing away in an attempt to free himself from enslavement. Um, it was key in the anti-slavery movement in the decades before the Civil War, in the antebellum era. Um, free black people, fugitive slaves, anti-slavery advocates were all pro-post because it did not discriminate, you know. No one knew the colour of the person that sent the letter or who was going to pick it up. Um, Harriet Jacobs is known for outwitting um, the people that were looking for her by sending her family letters with New York postmarks when she was not there um, to confuse them and send them send the kind of hunt for her to a different place that she literally was not. Um, and so, you know... We have to give credit where credit is due to the Postal Service. Um, Frederick Douglass also observes uh, in an article in the North Star that cheap postage um, was really important, something that Britain were pushing at the time with the Penny Postage Act of 1840. Um, just this idea that posting would be more accessible, it would be cheaper, um, and that the government would respect the privacy of mail and mailing companies would not look into boxes it meant that anybody could mail anything and that is obviously the case of Henry Box Brown. Now I don't want to gloss over the kind of next few years of his life um, but Henry Brown is in the north you know he is a free man essentially lecturing across New England on the evils of slavery 
Um, he moves around quite a bit because there are obviously bounty hunters out for him and his story begins to appear in major publications. You know, he speaks at very public rallies and he becomes a leading voice in the abolitionist movement, um, supporting himself, charging speaker fees at rallies and lectures. Um, and he appears before the New England Anti-Slavery Convention in Boston, um, where his escape is celebrated um, under this kind of idea that... Um, enslaved people desired liberty and it's kind of at this moment he's renamed henry box brown now i think this is quite interesting especially thinking about comments made by a particular rapper whose name we won't mention on this podcast who said um that essentially something along the lines of um i won't quote that enslaved people really could have done more basically if they didn't want to be enslaved they shouldn't have been enslaved um but it's crazy because that was an argument that was being perpetrated in 1840 by people that wanted to keep the institution of slavery alive and continue to hold black people as property and chattel um and so it was his escape that actually pushed back against the narrative um at that time and it's funny that in 1840 it was understood that enslaved people wanted liberty but that's not a message that people were understanding in 2020 or 2019 or wherever those words left that man's mouth anyway the less you say about that the better but you know his life in the north came to kind of an abrupt ending not that he died at that point sorry i shouldn't have explained it like that but that fugitive slave bill was imminent in the summer of 1850 and if you've listened to the william and ellen craft episode you'll know exactly what that means it means that those people the african-american people that have escaped the formerly enslaved people um they have no right to have escaped to the north and there is a responsibility by other people to return them if they are found back to their former owners um and so it means that you know there's a bounty on his head um there's already been a bounty but now there's law back in it that says he needs to be captured and returned to virginia literally the law says that that needs to happen, not just the fact that, oh, people are looking for him because they want him back. It's now the law. Um, And it's unfortunately at that point, he's also assaulted on the street in Providence, Rhode Island. um, And he kind of believes at this point his risk of being captured is very, very real and very much imminent. Um, And so things change. And he decides that he needs to go to England as the only way to be free, similar to Ellen and William Craft, and he travels to England by ship on in October 1850. Now, it was during his time in Britain that things kind of take a turn. He is billed as like an anti-slavery lecturer, an abolitionist, but he, he's still, he's a performer, and maybe put himself into the box with his first act because he becomes a magician, an actor, a mesmerist. He sings. He does all these kind of things on stage. And yes, he's most definitely pushing the anti-slavery agenda and working as an abolitionist, but he's not really fitting the the typical mould of anti-slavery lecture, formerly enslaved, um, you know, kind of speaking about the ills um, and evils of slavery. He takes his act a little bit further and he starts to perform. Um, He stars in a play based on his own life and he would also walk the streets in English towns in traditional African wear, styling himself as this kind of African prince. He realises quite quickly that his story does lend itself very well to this entertainment element and often recreates the experience of getting into the box um, for the abolitionist circuit. Um, He boxes himself up again in Bradford, is taken to a train station um, and yeah, 
it's interesting the way that he brings his performance element into his story. And I think in my head, if I was going to pass judgment, and I know I shouldn't, I feel it's at this point he just starts to lose himself and lose maybe the original motivation for his escape. Because the performance element, I just feel like the way I think about someone being in a box for 27 hours is trauma. I can only see trauma. I can only see suffering. I can see pain. I can see relief of making the journey, of being free. But I just don't see that as something I'd want to do again and again. I wasn't formerly enslaved. I wasn't Henry Brown. So maybe I don't know. But I put it to you as a listener. If this was your story, could you then go back and do it all again for the sake of entertainment? So whilst in England, he continues as well as performing to make a real point about discussing the destruction of the family unit by white slaveholders and the brutality of his experience going through this, as I said at the start. And in the Bradford Observer on December 23rd, 1852, he writes, There is no man, I care not who he be, black or white, has felt the loss of his wife and children more than I. I have borne the galling chains, the tyrant's threats, and more than that, I have seen my wife sold and bartered from one villain to another and still clung to her and my children as long as they remained in Richmond. At length, a fatal hour arrived. My wife is sold off to a wretch not to work in a cotton field or rice plantation, but as she was handsome, for a purpose I cannot here name, but leave you and the public to judge. Bereft of my wife and children and all the comfort that even the hapless slave enjoys, I resolved to be free. I obtained my liberty. And this really sums up really 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 truly sums up how terrible this situation was for him that he had to live through um you know as he said there is literally no man who can experience and talk about this experience um in the way that i can because this has happened to me um his heartbreak is very palpable especially and this is 1852 in the bradford observer four years after um his escape from um the plantation that he was on um Now, this is also the point where the narrative really just starts to really confuse me, um, I'll be honest. And this is where Henry Brown becomes problematic, if he wasn't already for the kind of performance elements of the box situation. But he has a chance to purchase his wife from enslavement because the the wife's master, whoever that may be at this point, kind of hears the story of of Henry and reaches out um, through different people, different avenues and says, look, if you want to buy her, just fine, have a kind of thing. Um, And this is all kind of recorded and also on record is his refusal to do so. And no one really knows the exact reason why. You can literally Google. It's one of, if you start typing Henry Box Brown, the one of the Google questions that comes up is, why did he not get his wife? Like, why, why did he not do that? Um, and he, he's spoken so much about the destruction of the family. He, you know, is so upset. It's a whole motivation for him to put himself in a box for 27 hours and get to Philadelphia and then get to England. And he does all of this and continues to talk about the fact that he's so heartbroken by the fact that he's been separated from his wife and his children and then he's given the opportunity to get his wife and his children and he doesn't take it and I just don't know why I'm so confused this is man. this man has honestly I, I don't know I don't know he declines the offer you know I don't know I don't know 
I told this story to someone before, before I'd recorded this episode, and um, they said I ruined the story when I told them that part. But you know what? People are not perfect. Um, and whilst this will confuse me forever, if anybody knows why or maybe can think about why this was the case, then just let me know. Um, but I will say he did remarry, actually. He married a white British woman named Jane Floyd um, and at that point kind of abandoned his, his first wife in slavery. She was a white Cornish tin worker's daughter um, and they went on to have children together and a family. Um, his story was somewhat of an embarrassment within the abolition community, let me be honest with you. They tried to keep this whole thing under wraps because it just was not on brand. It was not what people were doing. As to contrast it with William and Ellen Craft, who obviously, you know, escape together and then try and they get his mom, his family, um, uh, her mom as well. If you listen to last week's episode, they literally go back um, when they can and they try and free everyone possible um, and use their story to inspire others. I think Henry doesn't do that. Well, we know he doesn't do that. It's just very different, the outcome maybe it's a trauma of being in a box for 27 hours i really don't know but he's criticized heavily especially by frederick Douglass, who also criticizes him for publicizing this whole box situation because they can't use a box anymore they can't let people escape through a box because everybody knows um and at that point it's so public and such a gr- huge story that mail is beginning to be searched. So he kind of ruins it for everybody else, as well as not going back to get his wife. And he doesn't even need to go back, like, the offer's there. So this is where my love for Henry Box Brown kind of falls to the wayside as his story confuses me. He does return back to the United States um, in 1875 with his wife and his daughter and performs as a, as a magician. Um carrying on this portrayal of this African prince, continuing to use the box as this kind of gimmick. Um, and, yeah, it's reported quite well in, in newspapers, which is kind of one of the main sources for um, the research of this episode. Um, he dies in Toronto in June 1897. Um, and, yeah, that is kind of a bit of a weird ending to this episode. I will say, though, besides the point of the kind of performativism of the box and what happens after there is this this really important symbolism that few historians do speak about um with this idea of him being packed into a box to get to freedom you know the middle passages um saw africans packed into tight enclosed spaces and it's kind of like boxes um brown's journey was this kind of symbolic embodiment of the soul of every slave um i think there's a historian called marcus woods who says um brown's choice of space was a symbolic atonement of the soul of every slave in a state of bondage um and i think there is a really important symbolism to think about here it's like a metaphor in ways for the oppression of slavery um and the sense that the journey itself into slavery was one packed in one uncomfortable with a lack of food water and air um and to to be free he he goes through that journey again um but then that kind of loses its value when we start thinking about the fact that he put himself in the box repeatedly for performance elements i don't know i don't know for henry brown um you know when people ask you if you had a dinner party and you would invite who would you invite dead or alive i would invite him just so i can ask him why why did he do what he did and why didn't he do what he should have done in my opinion 
Um, but that's enough about Henry Brock Brown today. Um, he's one of those figures that I'm compelled to keep reading about. And I think, I hope more is published on him. He's a known figure, I will say, but I think for the magnitude of the story, minus a bit where he doesn't get his wife back, I think there could be a lot more done about him. I think there are calls for some kind of film or reenactment. It would be a really good film. This is like Hollywood would eat this um, with a lot of flair and faff. But still, you know, the, there's a potential for a really cool story here. Um, a really cool film, should I say. But that's all I'm going to say about Henry Box Brown today. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. Um, I hope you have a wonderful week. Um, and tune in again next week where we will be joined by a special guest Tion Paris um, who is part of the History Matters Collective an editorial team um, and we're going to be thinking about radical black women um, moving forwards a little bit uh, we're leaving the 19th century um, moving into the 20th century so tune in for that thank you so much for listening hope you have a great week goodbye